I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to Playing Footsie, the podcast where we talk about stocks, investing, and personal finance. Before we start, we want to make it clear that the information presented on this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. None of us is a financial advisor, and this is not financial advice. Investing in the stock market comes with risks, and we strongly encourage our listeners to do their own research and consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Now, let's dive into the world of finance and talk about what we're doing with our money. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. As you can tell from the state of my hair and the nicely rested state of Steve D, it's in fact October that we're recording this. I know it's going out a little bit later, but things are kind of all right for us at the moment. Anyway, we are thrilled because we've got some guests on the show this week that are not Paul. We've got Brett and Ryan from Chit Chat Money, which is, if you don't know what that is, by the way, shame on you. More than once now, Steve has recommended this show. So really, viewers and listeners, you really ought to have checked this out by this time. But anyway, here they are if you haven't found them yet. So, Steve, you've been talking positively about this and with good reason a couple of times now. How are you? Are you excited? Very much so. Yeah, very much so indeed. Um, I've been listening to these two for uh, for about a year now, I would say. So uh, I first stumbled across them on Spotify and then uh, I must be one of the, 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 the earliest ones who saw you on YouTube as well. So, um, yeah, uh, very, very happy to have you two here. Um, I think we as a three probably as a four have very very similar investing philosophies so this might be um quite a a, a, a bit of confirmation bias for everybody at home but yeah welcome brett welcome ryan um how are you guys doing doing well glad to be here yeah Yeah, that's great intro thanks for thanks for listening to the show and uh thanks for the uh, high praise there yeah appreciate the shout out yeah we're doing well over in the what i would say an area of the world that's very similar to the united kingdom the pacific northwest in the united states seattle washington so yeah you know just embracing the cold and gloomy weather <laughs> yeah i've got a lot of that got a lot of that where i am it's uh it's yeah. it, it is very cold and very gloomy we're in that sort of period now where it's it's dark when you get up to go to work and it's you know, it's dark when you're starting to go home as well so yeah and you only work um, like anyway. four hours a day as well well, that's not that I do. I work for four hours a day. I actually am supposed to work for eight. But anyway, um, yeah. So content of your podcast is really, really similar to ours. For anybody who hasn't listened to it before, um, but what would you say is the general theme of your of your podcast? Brett, go for it. Uh, okay, yeah. So we have three different types of shows. It's a standard podcast. We have one where we go through individual stocks ourselves. So it's just Ryan and I. Uh, we used to have a third guy on, but he did move on to we'll call it bigger and better things as a investment bank analyst. Uh, then we have another one where we interview people. It could be anyone from like a CEO. We've had a couple on to individual investor to analyst, basically talking about an individual stock or a sector or some specific theme. So we kind of do a 45 minutes, maybe an hour long interview along those lines. And then we have what we call our, investing power hours where we go for an hour and we talk about whatever we want in the investing world we actually just recorded one this morning and we talked just because it's the middle of october or late october earnings season so yeah those are the three themes we try to keep it really focused on individual stocks that's kind of our theme i know we talked about this beforehand the name is a little broad. We wish we could have something that's a little more, you know, more specific than chit chat money. But yeah, we focus a lot on fundamental investing, individual stocks, stuff like that. Yeah, the only thing I'd add there is 
the uh, we we call it this in jest, but we have what we call the not so deep dive where uh, Brett, Brett was mentioning this. We're looking at a business. Basically, we've done a week's worth of research and typically it's our first time really looking at that business. We've probably heard of it or something, but it's our first time really kind of actually dissecting the business, kind of going through the history and all that, which you can get a lot of shows like that with business breakdowns and that kind of theme. But we're hopefully coming away with a takeaway on the actual stock by the end. So it's basically the top level of, of our research process where we're saying, are we more or less interested by the end of it? And hopefully it kind of, if we like it, hopefully we re- revisit it down the road. Yes, yeah, so there's quite a lot of crossover in terms of style between the sort of stuff you guys do and the sort of stuff we do. We tend to sort of squash it all into one episode and then try and separate it out into, I guess, shorts sort of later in the week. And any given week for us might feature more of one thing or more of another thing, depending on what's happened and what we've been interested in. But you've had some guests on your show that I thought were really interesting. I think of your show as similar to ours in quite a lot of ways that we'll come back to. But one is that you have um some guests i'd say we have slightly better guests mostly because you've been guests on our show and not the other way around which means we have the edge when it comes to inviting people you probably have the edge when it comes to hosting um but who would you say your favorite guest or guests have have been that you've had on the show oh good question i think uh, you know we like all of them tough obviously (laughs) but i think i'm going to go with the ones that have been on multiple times these are various analysts that we've just become friendly with and have had on multiple times. So one would be Alex Morris at the Science Fitting Research Service. There's another Matt Cochran who has had various guess, roles in the investing world as we've known him. Uh, who, am I, who else am I forgetting here, Ryan? That's been on three or four times. Leandro from from Best Quotes, Best Anchor, yeah. Best Anchor Stocks, uh, another European. So. We've had a number of people on. Is he Italian or is he Spanish? He's Spanish. Spanish. Spanish, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's hard to pick one because you don't want to feel like you're leaving anyone out. Something, one we did recently that I really enjoyed, we spoke to, and we don't get like a lot of executives on the show, but we had, it hasn't come out yet, but we recorded uh, an interview with the CEO of RCI Hospitality and just kind of, it's fun to talk to actual business operators because you get a bit of a better glimpse into like how they think about the business versus how people on the outside think about it. And he just kind of gives talking to him. I realized it's really not that different there. He's allocating capital in a lot of the same ways that investors would think he is. So, you know, he's thinking about do we, what's our risk adjusted returns on new locations versus just buying back our own stock. And it's the same idea that investors were grappling with as well. So it's just kind of fun to actually talk to people that are in, in the actual businesses themselves. Yeah. And one thing I'd add is that we really enjoy having on as many of your listeners might know, there's been a big growth in Substacks and those sort of newsletters that people have done. Uh, maybe the decentralization of research, sort of how podcasts have been, but on a, you know, kind of, those are a little newer. We really enjoy having those type of people on where they either do research either for free or for paid, um, where they're researching stocks and basically they've done a report. They come on, discuss the report, discuss their ideas, and we really enjoy those episodes. So anyone that checks out our feed, just scroll through, find a stock that looks interesting in the title and and check it out. Yeah, we usually try to focus on, especially with the interviews, more of a like finding someone that's an expert on a business 
where it's not okay they just researched it in a week like we did for our tuesday episodes but someone that's known a business for multiple years it can really speak deeply to it yeah leandro and um, science have written a really really good twitter followers for anybody that isn't following or x followers as well they're they're, they're both paid services um but they they do give out quite a lot of their research for free science of hitting is just just graph mad uh, every week there's a new graph showing something that you wouldn't have thought would be worth measuring and then when when he actually presents it's alex isn't it when alex actually presents it you think actually that's that's an interesting metric to track that and i mean you you could do it all yourself but it's the it's the idea behind behind tracking that particular metric which is which is fascinating um do you have anything to add to that or from mr shovel on he does have the best charts uh, hmm. I, I think yeah, we've told them before. We've asked like, you know, how do you do these charts? Because they're they're top notch, but uh, it's his secret, so he won't tell us, unfortunately. <laughs> Fair enough. That's it. you're allowed to have some secrets. Um, so yeah, one difference between um our podcast then is that uh, you guys have actually met. Um, Steve and I have not actually ever met. Um, so how do you guys know each other? Um, how how did you meet? Yeah, we got an interesting story. So we both, I guess, you guys are we'll call it American football on the, on this show. So we were at, uh, and I'll also call it university, right? That's what you guys call it. Or, or is that instead of college? Yeah. Okay. So we're at university and we both played on the American football team and we were both the kickers, which is, I guess for the UK people, the one that, you know, kicks it through the uprights, sort of like rugby. And we both got, we were, you know, you're hanging out eight, 10 hours a day when you're on the, the football team and you have to as a kicker you have a lot of time to talk you're always meeting and stuff and we both figured out that we we're kind of into investing and this is you know right when we we're starting out in college and or university sorry <laughs> uh and we uh yeah we just said hey you're both into this we both really like it it's kind of something we're passionate about and it's something we both talked about wanting to get into later and then we're trying to learn you know you read some of the books you get all the recommendations from what you look up online i'm sure everyone looks up what are the books to read as a starting investor and then everyone says um you know the i'm forgetting the growth stock guy but you have the ben graham one you have buffett's letters and then the uncommon who is it oh yeah peter lynch peter lynch yeah Uh how could i how could i forget you know you read those but we're kind of trying to find other stuff when we're listening to some podcast i know the biggest one that's maybe the oldest, and that's probably because it was a radio show to begin with, was Motley Fool Money. We listened to that one back in the day. I mean, it's, it's a perfect one in their old style, and probably the new one as well for people that are starting out. They keep it simple. They, they really explain things. But we were thinking, hey, there's not that many out there at the time. And it might have been a bit ambitious for people that, you know, when we were very young. But we are like, hey, why don't we start it out? We'll kind of see what happens. It's probably going to be bad. No one's going to listen at the start, but we'll just keep grinding away and we'll kind of learn ourselves discussing these things. And here we are. We kind of just grinded away and figured out the niche that worked for us. And now we're keeping, you know, trying to build it and keep going from here. We, yeah. We thought initially we're like, we'll be like the funny guys of finance. And we realized pretty early on, like it's just not that funny. Like we're not that funny and there aren't that many funny topics. So we're a little funny, we, but not that funny. <laughs> <laughs> we, we quickly kind of revised it into moving more and more towards kind of individual stock analysis, which is now we, we do that power hour show, which I think you guys mentioned where 
it's casual talk about anything, but we really try to focus on just analyzing individual stocks because we think that's pretty relatable for everyone else that's listening. And uh, we certainly weren't very good at the start or maybe we didn't know it then. Maybe we're not good now, but as we've gotten better, we've hopefully the people that have been longtime listeners have gotten better with us. So it's just kind of always learning looking at new businesses every time we analyze a business it kind of helps us with the next potential business that we're going to analyze so it's uh it's been kind of a constant evolution but yeah that's that's how it started we're not uh we wanted to be the bar stool of finance kind of but i don't know if you guys are familiar with barstool that, yeah, we that dream barstool, faded yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, See, yeah i think i think we we have a similar sort of idea to that didn't we steve but we found that the the, the sort of the only way to make it sort of funny is to sort of throw in a dick joke every so often it just, it just doesn't seem to work with finance does it i mean exactly that this is basically our show but uh set in the u.s they talk about a sport that no one outside their country is interested in much like we do with cricket and they're not very <laughs> yeah, funny true, yeah. uh, much yeah. like us uh basically um i uh we're still saving our our first meeting by the way we're going to make it some something some amazing story for how we met so when people say how did you meet we'll say yeah last month actually we did this thing uh whatever that's um gonna be neither of us has given much thought to this idea yet but no neither of us has met neither of us has met paul either it's his discord that we met through there are even more similarities by the way uh between the, the two shows you talking i was watching your episode on agin we'll come back to that in a little bit but the way you kind of introduced that show is it's a kind of extension of the kind of conversations that you might have when you're thinking about things from an investing perspective and the kind of original idea from this show um it's moved away away from that i think if we're if we're kind of honest is it was supposed to be a sort of extended and and published version of the sort of conversation steve and i were having in uh dms basically across um discord now um most of the stuff we actually have in dms is much funnier and much less insightful uh than we in fact have the trouble is uh, believe it or not, even fewer people uh, would watch and listen to our show, I think, than than currently do if we had that. And significantly more people would be offended by it, I think, uh, because no one really wants to um, that kind of stuff. So we tried talking about stocks and said, which um, is supposed to be sort of difficult, but it's it's probably significantly easier than trying to be trying to be funny, I think. We're also not talking about cricket at all at the moment because uh, England are currently playing in the World Cup, getting spanked every week. So um, I think we're are we actually out now, Steve? Uh, I know we've been beaten by nope. the, by the by such uh, uh, great nations as Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, and well, South Africa will give them very decent cricket. South team, Africa but, looking um, pretty strong, but yes, we've lost to Afghanistan and we've lost to Sri Lanka. Um, uh anyway um back to oh, by the way the rams are looking for oh no the rams have signed a kicker now haven't they at the time of uh recording the rams had cut brett maher earlier this week i like american football too see um and i but you guys are still uh no plans on giving that up to go and try and kick professionally then no i was not good enough for that though no. No, no, neither yeah. of us even got in uh for, <laughs> we were both backups for the the college team so yeah that Fair enough. But let's talk about some point of difference then between um, us and you. Here's a, an interesting difference between us and you. You guys can be bothered to write a newsletter. Uh, we can't be bothered to write a newsletter at the moment, at least at time of recording. No doubt we'll have reached for this by the time this goes out in December. But um, why do you guys write a, a newsletter? You know, um, what's the kind of reason for going for that medium as well as some of the other stuff that you do? Well, I think it's... <sighs> 
Yeah, it does take a little bit of work. It's it's a little bit harder to write stuff than just talk about it like we are now. But it's essentially a way for us to get more distribution for the podcast, as well as another outlet for people to just get exposure to our analysis. And the way we thought about it is, hey, we wrote, we write our show notes for you know the ones we call the knots of deep dives. And we do a little bit of research there. And we said, hey, why don't we just post that on the newsletter, the Substack, and yeah, it's just called the Chit Chat Money Substack. We'll post the links to the show, the shows across you know YouTube, Apple, or Spotify, and then have those in there because a lot of times when you're analyzing a stock on a podcast, you might talk about a few numbers, and when someone's listening, it might be difficult to kind of understand those. So we'll try to throw in some graphics, <clears throat> any graphics we've mentioned, and any numbers, any charts. And hopefully we kind of want those two to tie together. So we send them out simultaneously, essentially on the same day, uh, which is like Tuesday morning. And then hopefully if someone, you know, reads the newsletter and then listens to the podcast and I don't know what one you'd want to do first, but when you do that, we hope basically get a comprehensive overview of what the business is. You're not going to be an expert on it after listening to the hour long show, but we hope it can serve as a great introduction to the episode and it's uh in general we kind of thought about it as a distribution thing for the podcast but you you gotta give people a reason to subscribe so you can't just say hey our links are gonna be in the newsletter you gotta add something on you know value to it as well yeah we we talk about a lot of charts in in those shows because sometimes basically when when we're putting in the earnings numbers or we're trying to forecast whether or not it'll be a good investment. Brett's got this Excel sheet that he runs. It's pretty quick. And there's a whole bunch of charts that come out of that. And I think it's really annoying when people talk about charts because it's like hard to follow as opposed to just seeing a chart. Brett doesn't seem to care. I don't think our listeners really care that much, but we just thought, hey, we're making the charts anyways. Let's just copy and paste them into a newsletter so that anyone that wants to go and read it as a supplement can simply just do that after listening to the show. We've we've had this mistake before, Steve, haven't we? we we've tried to explain a dot plot to somebody before. Um, we, yeah, it, it didn't. Yeah, it didn't go very well. And we 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 uh, obviously the vast majority of our listeners are on Spotify as well, so they had literally no visual clue whatsoever for what we were trying to explain. I think we did a half decent job of it, Steve. I think that was that one was it was ent- was enterprise value to revenue growth or something we were trying to explain. And, and somebody on uh, on X had plotted this beautiful graph of all the growth companies and where they sit. And, and we were just sort of pointing out which ones we were surprised about, but potentially not the best thing to try and uh, to try and explain, I guess. Um, why is it a not so deep dive just out of interest? I mean, fifteen minutes for us, we would call that a deep dive. <laughs> why? Why is uh, not we, so? It's a bit sarcastic, I'd say. There's a lot of everyone calls things a deep dive, and we were like, okay, we we want to call it something. We're basically doing that, right? We're not doing anything crazy novel here, but we were like, okay, how do we make it a little bit different, maybe a little bit catchier? And we're like, why don't we just call it a not so deep dive? Because ever we cut a joke like privately about the people that talk about, oh, I just wrote a 70 page research report. Oh, I, I went so deep on this company, so deep. Like and we're like, oh, I must know this company so well now. And we kind of joke around about how 
like you can research a company too much or if you spend six hours every day for a half a year researching a company it doesn't mean the stock's going to go up so we we did that a little bit in jest i mean obviously it's all fun you know people can research as much as they want but we really wanted to i don't know if it worked like i go back and forth on whether it works or not where people get confused but i i, I hope they understand that it, it's it's sort of a deep dive but we're trying to play off that concept the p yeah Initially, too, we would. I think a lot of people they'll see a podcast about uh, if it's a stock, let's say, uh, like a specific stock, and you see a podcast. Your initial thought is, "Well, this is probably going to be pretty bullish if people are going to go out here and talk about it for an hour." A lot of the time, especially in 2020, we're looking at these businesses and we're just giving our honest opinions. And sometimes it's yeah, we wouldn't touch this at all. We're, we would never invest, and we think it's overvalued. People didn't really like to hear that. So we would get a lot of mean comments where it's like, this isn't a deep dive. You missed this part or this part. And it's like, okay, that is true. Like we're, we were researching it for a week and we decided we don't want to look at it anymore, but we don't know this better than everyone else. We're, you know, we're not a, a, like subject matter experts on every company we talk about. So we're like, it was kind of as, like a play on all the people that were like, this isn't a real deep dive. We're like, well, let's just call it the not so deep dive. And then, you know, it, it's in the name. So we're not lying to anyone, but yeah. it is still hopefully good analysis on, uh, on new companies for us. I like it. It gives you a license to kind of not cover anything that you didn't get around to covering. Right. So I, I teach at a university in this country college by your standards. Um, and I ask people each week who did their readings and most people say, yeah, they did them, but they've forgotten them, which is a way of saying, I'm going to tell you I did them, but it's functionally equivalent to I didn't do them. So it's going to look a lot like I didn't, but I definitely did. Uh, which means that any time I ask them something and say, but you said you did the reading, they say, yeah, but I also said I forgot it. So I've got a handy out for kind of anything that you hand my way here. Uh, a bit like saying, yeah, this is a deep dive, but you didn't cover this. Yeah, but it's not that deep of a dive, right? I, that's in the bit that's deeper yeah, than exactly. we were. I, I like this very much. I like the way these guys operate, Steve. Here's another thing I like about the way they operate, by the way. This newsletter idea, Paul suggested we do a newsletter once, um, mostly at a time when he wasn't around doing anything, but um, he said we should bring out a newsletter. And I initially thought, oh, this sounds like a lot of work for me, mostly, because as a general rule of thumb, and it's not precise this by any means, and there's other gray areas of overlap as well. If it's somehow technical, uh, Steve handles it for us. If it's uh, a writing-based thing, it's generally handled by me. So a newsletter would naturally fit under under uh, my um, uh, inbox and list of projects to do. But you said part of the motivation for your newsletter was that you kind of have show notes that you think, well, I might as well sort of uh, get something from these and put them to good use. I don't write show notes for our shows. I have a bunch of bullet points written on a piece of paper that look like this. Steve, on the other hand, writes incredibly long show notes and he has all his stuff written out very carefully. I rely on just kind of remembering what I wrote and presenting it in a reasonably natural sort of fashion. So I'm rapidly coming around to the idea, Steve, that we should have a, uh, a newsletter that we should send out to people containing the things that we write down on various companies and stuff. See, I consider myself to be an incredibly stupid person, so unless I have it fully listed in front of me, there's just a high chance I'm just going to forget something. Do you know what I mean? Especially when, like Paul wants us to, he's like, yeah, don't even look. Just just read read the read the revenue and the, and the profit as if it's the first time you've seen it. And I was like, do you realize how difficult that is to come up with, uh, you know, to come up with a uh, thesis on something just as quickly as that? I just, I don't know how you guys, do. are you guys extensive? Note writers, I know. Do you guys come up with stuff on the fly? I can't imagine you come up with it on the fly. It seems 
it seems far too sort of like intelligent debate for that. If we, yeah, I think there's, especially for podcasts, there's got to be a balance of like raw reactions to things and natural conversation, as well as a little bit of prep. Cause if you just get one of those where it's like, we're just having a random conversation, I think it like the podcast as a whole loses direction, but we have a shared Google drive where Brett and I, for each new company, we just have basically a checklist. I fill in some things, he fills in the other things. And then because we designate certain sections to each other for each business that we look at, it provides a little bit of that natural conversation, that raw reaction, because I'm not looking at the proxy. I'm not looking at the ownership. That's Brett's role. And so when Brett talks about it on the show, it's kind of a surprise to me anyways. So hope that's the way we run it. And I, I think it's a pretty good balance. Would you agree, Brett? Yeah, I agree. And I think another thing we like to do is we want to have all the facts there, but then, and we don't have a set number that we put in, but we always put in various amount of discussion questions that we're not going to answer beforehand, but I will maybe toss in something on the industry thing. Like, okay, what do you think of their position in the Latin America market, for example, for some random one? And then we can discuss that on the episode and we're not going to have our opinions beforehand. So a lot of the notes are going to be just kind of the facts or the little things we want to explain during the episode and maybe springboard some discussion ideas, but we want a lot of it to be, it's not going to be pre-recorded. Oh, that's going to be your take on this. That's going to be my take on this. Sometimes I'm surprised, you know, what we're pretty similar investors, but you know, sometimes you can be surprised, you know, what Ryan thinks on something and, and I'll, you know, and vice versa. We we very rarely sort of disagree on 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 most things, do we, Steve? I think we're we're of one mind of of quite a lot of things. I think I can't think of many things where we I've said I think this is a really good stock, and you've turned around to me and gone, "Well, I think it's absolutely awful." I think we're more it's more a bit more nuanced than that. You know what I mean? I think we're we're, we're sort of spectrum. Of we awful. cut all those bits out, to be honest. No, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, the only bits we've really cut out has been when one or other of us is. Um, tried to present a stock chucked in a question and the other one has been miles off the mark so if someone says so so what would you expect margins for a company like this to be and they give a number that's ridiculous and you're like no you bloody idiot um so we generally do that bit again uh or something along those lines so yeah. we don't completely share our notes um either on these things we have ideas of look we'll talk about um microsoft i'll kick us off we'll take it from there um then we'll talk about uh, Crowder International. Uh, you get started, you've got the numbers, and then we'll we'll follow on from that and so on. Generally, um, I think by now, and we've been, what have we been, 100 and something shows, it would be weird if um, either of us had no idea how the other one was going to respond to hearing something you'd think we weren't paying attention uh, by this point. But um, yeah, I don't think we've had any kind of major, major um disagreements though we own reasonably different things in quite a few cases of the stuff that we've yeah, got almost about. entirely different things yeah mm, i think it's so. strange we have we have different portfolios where i think each of us look at the 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 shares that each of us own and go oh that's you know that's quite a nice portfolio yeah, it's fine <laughs> but, yeah mine should look a bit more like that but yeah. do you have any strange ones that over do you have ones yeah. any that both overlap like do you have at least yes. one that you both own do you, we do have at least amazon one Amazon yeah, is Amazon's. the one that I was thinking of too. We also have a brick company in the UK called Forterra, I think. Steve? Yeah, we're, we're doing exceptionally badly on that. Uh, uh, we have a copper yeah. mining company in Peru called Southern Copper that we forget about yeah. because it's the only stock that's green for either of us at the moment, but it's very green for both of us. Not and 
All right, fine. It's the only thing that's hundred percent green for his buff. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, that might be the sum total of it. I think. Do you so have business done? No. Uh, oh, okay. I do. Sorry, but that's in my best, not my ISA. I'm thinking through the ISA thing. Yeah, yeah, I do own Disney as well. Uh, that might be it. Neither of us has. Uh, fun fact: since you asked, actually, both of us when we began investing, like most people who sort of begin investing on um, low cost investing apps and so on, both really began before it's fair to say we knew what we were doing. Um, both of us, I think, bought the first, the same thing as our first. Um, share and steve is now going to ruin this by saying the wrong name but what was it steve don't know oh you you are a nightmare uh i believe uh we played a game once with paul called steve 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 and steve or not steve based on which yeah. of the following applies to uh, which of us uh i believe that the first stock we bought was lloyd's banking group with both of us because it's oh, yeah. about 40 yeah, it p yeah. Uh, a share and it's a massive great bank uh, and you think that must be cheap right because it's a massive great bank and he's got a 40p share price. literally like that level of, of thinking pretty much and I've got a tenner I could buy loads of this I've got yeah, like yeah. most of Lloyd's or something which isn't how that works because it isn't how, how anything works uh, neither of us owns that stock anymore Steve and haven't done for well three years in my case longer than, Must that, be in more yours. than that i think i think more than mm. that yeah it's a bit like moths to the light uh or moths to the flame sorry for for british companies because they all trade at like like a well, equivalent of a dollar or under pretty much for for even like things like barclays which is like a huge uk uh and and international institution it's i think it's a pound 42 for a share or something like that a pound 40 for a share which is like getting on for a dollar so basically the first thing that uk investors do when they get onto a free brokerage is like cool i could get 10 shares of backlist for 10 quid here <laughs> they do that with no idea of or knowledge or you know i mean who seriously who wants to be buying banks are the most complex things in the world to buy um but yeah strange strange thing it's, it's strange that the american market is so much more uh, expensive in terms of just just share price alone yeah well a share price and valuation uh to to the uk i wonder why i suppose we're, we used to, we're in pence still aren't we everything in the uk is denominated in gbx but yeah interesting do you have any thoughts on why the us is, is that that's just an appreciation thing is it or i'm not sure yeah yeah i i have no idea maybe just a, i know there's like go ahead run maybe just like cultural differences in like terms of how co uh, investors like to buy things but I, yeah. I maybe uk really stocks just don't go up right <laughs> so. no, it, no, it's, it's a very good point the uk stocks don't go up if you get any money in the uk you dividend it out immediately um also mm. everything's bigger uh in the in the us i think including share prices um i was reading a report actually this week from ubs so uh ubs investment bank so smart money uh but not that smart money because it's UBS, right? Um, so uh, they were pointing out that as of well, roughly the time that we're recording this, um, the S&P 500, so the kind of major US index and the FTSE 100, so the major UK index, if you strip out the kind of obvious top end tech uh, from the US, so you have Microsoft and Tesla and so on, uh, remove that lot for the moment, the PE ratios come in quite similar. Um, it's currently being pulled a lot higher by Meta at 30 and Google at high 20s and, and you get the, the general idea. Um, and what they were saying is they think in that case, the US is offering much better value uh, right now. The reason being you get higher returns on invested capital, mostly due to two things. One is a bigger domestic market because US is just 
bigger uh, than the UK in this case, uh, and the other being lower taxes, because the UK's taxes are, are currently higher. Um, no doubt our politicians will sort that out soon enough. They've just removed the cap or announced they're going to remove the cap on investment banking bonuses. Um, so we will once again be a banking powerhouse in the UK, and that Lloyd's share price will get itself up to 65p. You heard it here first. Um <laughs> Enough about the kind of nonsense we look for uh, in terms of finding stocks to buy. Uh, we'll get to some kind of specifics in a moment. Before we move on, a quick one from Steve and me. If you're enjoying the show, please do give us a like, a comment and a rating on whatever platform you're listening on. And make sure you share the podcast with your investing friends. It helps us a lot and we're really looking forward to building out something that you guys can get some value from and that we can have some fun in making. So do like, subscribe and back on with the show. The sucker's going up. But how about you guys? What do you look for when you're looking for uh, stocks to buy, companies to invest in, businesses to own, that kind of thing? Well, there's like three different, or there's a lot of different things, but the three overviews, I'd say, or pillars you might describe it as that we care about. First, we care about valuation. So looking at the stock, whether it's cheap and all these kind of relate to each other. Second, we, uh, and you can come about this in different ways, but it kind of all leads back to a competitive advantage. So it's the classic looking for a competitive advantage. And the way we kind of look about at it is we ask the question, is the business, you know, revenue, earnings, what have you, is it predictable? And if so, what is a reasonable assumption for that? So we we look like, okay, if it's predictable, it probably has a competitive advantage because if it doesn't have one, then who knows, maybe they'll get disrupted next year. And the second one, or excuse me, the third one is management. So we want to just ask the question, do we trust management? Because they're going to get a lot of the money that comes in and they're going to have to decide what to do with it. And I think any listener, maybe longtime investors won't be surprised, but anyone new may be surprised how few management teams we actually say, hey, yeah, I think we trust them to act reasonably here because there's a lot of them that... For whatever reason, they're always smart people, but there's kind of this herd behavior on what to do. And a lot of the times, it's really the opposite of what the great CEOs like Buffett, you know, Costco, whoever, Constellation Software all do. Ryan, any anything else? No, I think you're right. I mean, there's a lot of CEOs out there that just simply have different incentives. Like they're not aligned with what is in the best interest of shareholders. So those typically get omitted. We have a couple that are just unique positions, kind of special. Like we've got one that's, well, we've got a couple that aren't great businesses, but we think they're just dirt cheap and they might re-rate. And th th those are kind of the outliers, but really we're looking, I'd say primarily for durable earning streams. So businesses where we think, and ideally it's, it's one where other people don't realize how durable the earning stream is, but we're looking for businesses that we think can not, not only grow, but earn a lot of money for a long time because of those competitive advantages that Brett was mentioning. And in, in the best case scenario, we've got good management, durable earning streams, and the market doesn't think the earnings are that durable. So if, if we can find that, that's right in the wheelhouse, but those, those are pretty rare. So I guess, we we maybe focus more so on quality than we used to. And by quality, we're talking about ability to 
earn high returns on their investments over long periods of time. Interesting. Yeah. So just, just going back to management just quickly. So when, when you say that you're, you're looking for a competent manager, do you have a a specific sort of checkbox that you're going through that you're looking for specific qualities? Do you have a specific process? Could could we just drill into that a little bit? Because I find judging management is really quite difficult to do. I think that's probably one of the hardest parts of, uh, of investing is trying to figure out if this guy is on is on your side or he's just trying to line his own pocket or, or if he's somewhere in between. So w- just walk us through that process just a little bit and tell us what, what qualities you're looking for. What What is it that you see? Yeah, so I will admit a lot of it is qualitative from a sort of, you, you know, that saying, uh, you know it when you see it, right? that's part of it where you kind of go, okay, these guys are honest. I had that vibe with the AutoZone management team and their culture. But I'd say two things we look for specifically. First is the incentives they're getting. Most companies are paying out and we call it the trifecta of compensation consultants. They pay out the base salary and then annual bonuses that are cash-based and they're the bonuses are based on some sort of metrics and then long-term equity awards that are also usually based on metrics that could be a performance stock unit or whatever. We kind of look like what they're getting, like what are the metrics and what are the targets and do we think it's reasonable for this type of business? A lot of the times we're looking for, you know, more growth and free cash flow per share compared to adjusted EBITDA. That'd be a big red flag if it's all just adjusted EBITDA and they're just paying themselves handsome stock-based comp, but in some cases it could be more different or could be different. You you might want for a retailer that's investing a lot or something, someone that's spending a lot of capital expenditures, they could, you know, we could look for same store sales and uh, store level margins or something like that. We think that'd be fine, but it's a case by case basis. And then the second one is we're looking for them. And this might not be as quantitative as I think, but you, again, you kind of know it when you see it is on a conference call or when they write something or when they communicate to the outside world, they're just talking honestly and they're not talking in platitudes. They're not just saying what the consultant speak of the day is. And you can see a stark difference from the ones that could just be, you could say, are just pulled out of a McKinsey you know, dime a dozen, they're coming in, they're saying the same thing. And you see it across the board, like, okay, they're all talking like this. All right, what are they even saying? Like, it's just kind of talking in circles, like, oh, we're going to invest for growth. We're going to really push on this. And you're like, this is nonsense. But the ones that we like are the ones that actually talk about issues at the business. I guess a good indicator is when they talk about things that went poorly. For example, a management team that we have a couple of gripes with from a expense discipline perspective is Spotify. It's kind of one we go back and forth on. We don't own it anymore. But from a speaking, like frankly, about when things go right and things go wrong, they check a lot of boxes there. Um, another example would be the Airbnb CEO. I know Airbnb is a controversial company for some, but they speak, or at least the CEO is the one that kind of has the public face there. He talks pretty honestly about what's going on, and he's not just saying, "Hey, look, everything's perfect. We're gonna, you know, what they all say on the conference calls. We're gonna try to execute our playbook, and we're just gonna really block and tackle here, and 
blah, 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 blah. They're actually speaking what's happening and telling you what's happening and trying to be upfront with their investors. So I think those are indicators that we find or try to find. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's hard to assess management that there isn't, you can't just say CEOs that have had 10 years of good returns on invested capital. Like that's, it's kind of an arbitrary filter. We just look for people that we think are genuine, candid, and hopefully intelligent with the capital at their disposal, which you don't have to be like, there's probably a lot smarter executives sometimes at these bigger companies that are worse off for shareholders. And we see that all the time. You can look in the proxy. And one of the biggest red flags is when they revise previous targets to still get their bonuses. And I mean, that's, that's just like plain as day. You can see it. It's clear. They're like, well, we said we could always revise it and our results were bad. So we revised it and we got our bonuses, but yeah, the shareholders, we're going to have to cut our yeah, and Why, why are the like results? That. Why are the results bad? <laughs> oh, I don't know who was in charge of this business, but we'll have to go talk to them. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was anyway. okay. it's like so, snap, Snapchat, just no yeah. earnings, but still paying out absolutely tons of stock-based compensation every, every quarter. I thought, was it, was you guys who tweeted out? Was it like 50, 50 million in adjusted EBITDA and 350 million in stock-based comp in the quarter? Is that nuts? Yeah. I think I retweeted that, <clears throat> but that was going, mm. yeah, this week. Yeah. I mean, that's like the opposite end that just look at what they say, what they do, look at their proxy statement, and then look at Adyen, which we think is one of the best management teams out there look at those two like adian's basically a playbook of what we like snap is a playbook of what we don't i look at those two and that's that's kind of that'll show what what we care about yeah i mean you could just it, it takes time but if you get the sense that the management team is using shareholder capital as their piggy bank you probably want out of that situation and at a lot of the big companies especially ones that have been passed down from management team to management team and you're just hiring the guy that is the best salesman because he did the best job in the interviews it's not really the ones we want to be aligned with one way to get around that is you find situations where the person running the company and allocating the capital owns a ton of the stock that tends to help it's not always perfect but you know, we've, we try to find businesses where there's high insider ownership because then you're hopefully well aligned. It's a motley full tenant as well, isn't it? Really? Skin mm, in the game. Skin in the game, kind of. Yeah. I was just going to say, I find management, assessing management really, really difficult. So I'm going to use an example quickly of the guy who runs Four Corners Property Trust. I don't know if you've ever come across that REIT in, in America. Uh, Bill Lenahan. Basically, when whenever anybody wants a, an expert on REITs, they tend to wheel him out. And, and he's he's really, really good. And I use him as an example of somebody who, who writes really, really well. But I always think when somebody writes really well, you've also got to hear them talk as well because you don't know if they're actually doing the writing or they're just sticking the name on anything. And he's somebody who does who does both. And you think, right, okay, so I'm going to look for somebody who writes well and speaks well. But then you look at it in a company like, I don't know, let's use Google as an example. Does it really matter if, if Sundar Pichai understands every single aspect of that business to the nth degree? Well, no, because it's such a massive conglomerate. So long as he understands how to allocate the capital, properly and puts the right people in charge to run the respective divisions and that's also an example of a really good CEO but that completely contradicts what you think about Four Corners so it's, it's like everything investing everything is situational uh, everything sort of has a, uh, a, a, a is a 
like every sector has a, a different way and, and sector in size has a different way of needing to look at something. And that, that makes investing incredibly complex. Yeah, it's case what? by case basis for sure. Yeah. And the other thing, basically a good manager is someone that doesn't have that many red flags. It's not necessarily like having a ton of green flags, but not having a bunch of red flags is the big one. One thing that I try to look for is how do they talk about their stock and what do they do with it? So there's a lot of managers that like, I like businesses where the management team doesn't want the stock trading at a premium. Because if you want the stock trading at a premium, it's going to go both ways. There's going to be momentum. When things go up, if you're trying to get as many shareholders as you possibly can, you're going to have a hard time when things start coming down. It's going to hurt employee morale. If you're using stock-based compensation, it's going to hurt employee morale as well. We want kind of that one-to-one correlation between increases in business intrinsic value and the actual stock price itself. That's hopefully the way management speaks and that's kind of what we're drawn to you mentioned um investing being kind of case by case i think that's absolutely right uh businesses aren't kind of the same even ones in the same industry in various ways maybe we can look at some uh some cases then in that case you mentioned adyen along the way adyen's a stock that our listeners will be familiar with at least by name it's one that um we've talked about a few times mostly led by um steve across the panel um from me here i would strongly recommend by the way any of our listeners having a listen to i'm going to call it the breakdown uh that you did because it sounded quite similar to the there's a very good episode of business breakdowns another show that we rate quite highly um on adyen talking about that company and its management and so on but your coverage of that was great in the i think hour and four minutes that you uh spent discussing that one i was listening to that video earlier today strongly recommend our listeners have a uh, a listen to that because there is more wisdom to be found in that but what do you guys think of Adyen? Did you say you don't own it at the moment? Is that right? We don't, but we actually, on the episode, I believe we discussed a, where we'd be much more interested in buying at $650 a share. And hey, today it went down below that. So maybe we'll be buying shortly. So anyone we could buy, it's getting close to where we'd like to buy it. But <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, this is one, for example, we talked about, we like the management team. That's one of the, you know, maybe one out of 10 that we look at. We're like, okay, the management team, the box gets checked here. And then second, we think that their competitive position in their industry is, and this is a case-by-case basis, because a lot of people look at what they do and they say, hey, at its core, it's a little bit of a commodity. You're just processing payments, you know, Stripe is going to be aggressive. PayPal is going to be aggressive on pricing with Braintree, which is why the stock's coming down. But if you look at the market share of these new payment processors versus the old ones, and you look at how clunky and barely strewn, not barely strewn together, but like people describe it as duct tape together, where there's a lot of leaky holes and stuff doesn't work as much as well together. We think Adyen can have a very durable competitive advantage because some of these old payment processors which have a lot of market share that Adyen can take, their success rates with their merchants are just much lower. And we think, again, okay, okay, it checks the box off for competitive advantage. So that's kind of two of the questions answered there. And then one with Adyen uh, that really was tough is the price, which was, I mean, it was trading at probably, I mean, maybe you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, what, like 70, 80 times earnings for a while. And we're like, hey, look, we like to buy this at you know a good premium, maybe 20, 30 times 
EBITDA or something like that. You know, we think EBITDA is pretty good. It'll translate to their true cash flow, but we'll wait for that. And if it never comes, it never, never shows up. But hey, now it might be showing up. So that's kind of how we look at things. <clears throat> it's not how we used to. I think uh, the bubble of 2020-2021 taught us that we thought price mattered, but we really didn't internalize it as well. And now instead of saying, hey, I really like this business, let's buy a little bit of this. We say, hey, we really like this business, Adyen, let's put it on the watch list. If sometime shows up over the next five years where we think the stock is cheap, maybe we'll take the leap. Yeah, I think Brett probably knows Adyen better than myself. So I kind of want to reiterate what he said. Management's really solid. They own a ton of the stock. The other part is the no acquisition philosophy and not having this patchwork of systems allows them to diagnose problems easier within the organization. And it's, what's his name? Peter Vanderdoes, I think was his, is the CEO's name. The company he was at prior, he talked about this where it's like, you've got ar archaic systems built by old teams that you don't understand. It's a lot harder to go in and diagnose and fix a problem and move fast when that's the case, because it's been built by acquisition after acquisition after acquisition. Because Adian was ground up, because they did everything internally, it's allowed them to move faster. And be, we don't get the specific data around authorization rates, but you can assume that it's significantly higher than their peers. One, because it, you can there's some third party data that tells you that, but also they've gone from 32 billion in euros in total payment volume in 2015 to 800 billion in so eight years you've added $800 billion in payment volume. I think that's a testament to probably the authorization authorization rates in the actual platform itself. Yeah. And then lastly on that, I would say one thing that I think a lot of investors, it was really great that this guy, I don't know if it was leaked or shared. It was the Buffett's protege, Todd Combs. I think it was Combs. One of the protégés said that, hey, like when, I, when I'm sitting with Buffett, one of the questions we ask it is for this business that we're looking at, do we think the competitive advantage will be wider in five years? And how confident are we in that? With Adyen, I think there's a big lot of potential for them to really widen their moat over the next five years. One, because of the geographic complexity of payments, they really want to get to every key market in the world and have seamless payment processing for their merchants. Two, the embrace uh, of omni-channel stuff for the enterprise merchants. And then three, all the other stuff they're adding on top where instead of like a lot of other payment processors uh, or excuse me, the merchant acquires or I forget, there's a couple different names for these. It's also confusing with payments, but instead of being just one little piece in the, you know, in the five companies that are the stakeholders for a payment processing, they're either, they're going to be the one that goes from, okay, you have the card or the person that's paying and then the the bank where they get it or the merchant, they're going to do everything for you. So like they have the the banking licenses on like Stripe, although I maybe Stripe changed that. I'm not exactly sure, but just in general, we think there's a ton of room for them to reinvest and widen their moat versus any sort of either upstart or someone that's one of these older companies where if you have the, you know, expand that geographic advantage improve that authorization rate and keep that 
I mean, we just think that they can even just further separate themselves from the pack. And that's kind of what gets us excited there. Plus the fact that the legacy providers still have 90% market share and we're in a, and it's an inflation protected market, which we also, <laughs> we, we like that a lot when you basically say, okay, if there's high inflation, well, they're just gonna, that's all going to get priced in here. Yeah, that, that's generally my thesis on, on Adyen is, is very similar. This is a stock I've held for a long time. So I've been over maybe 150% up on this. And I think I'm currently 35% down. So it's a huge, it's been a huge swing um, downwards. But my, my general thesis on, on Adyen, and you only have to go and look at the list of uh, of their customers that they're happy to showcase on the website. All you can see there is complexity. And uh, that's kind of where Adyen really, really shines. So Stripe and, and Braintree, they're happy to pick up the, the mom and pop shops in uh, the, the one-time um, sort of uh, payments or the, the small houses. They're happy to hoover all of those up, whereas Adyen is really going for the you know the big fish and, and they excel in, 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 in servicing those clients. We're, we're quite lucky on the Discord that we have a, a fellow in there who I won't name, who, who handles uh, payments for quite a large telecom system in the UK. And he was really impressed when he got Adyen in front of them. He was like, look, these guys know what they're talking about. Like, got them in front of us and they were like, they 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 knew exactly what kind of system to build for this uh, for this telecom provider. He since moved to another one, got them in again, and they were they were as equally as impressive the second time round as well. So, um, yeah, a company that I I really like the look of. I think their biggest issue is is that they basically came out and said, look, we're going to grow at thirty percent in perpetuity uh, from from here on. We think that's an achievable uh, kind of thing to do. And then on the very first report after doing that, there was like actually twenty four percent or twenty five, and that's that's kind of what's 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 happened to Adyen. It's in a big difference, 30 and 25. It makes a big difference when you stretch that out over long periods of time. Um, but yeah, yeah, I would like them not to... Uh, or, yeah. I, yeah, go on, the guidance part is tough. Yeah. Uh, it's tough when you... Guidance is just tough in general. Uh, I'm yeah, not, a, yeah. not a fan of especially specific the, the, guidance. That's right. Yeah, Their fall this week was because Worldline, I don't know if you saw the news about Worldline, a, a, a sort of a rival payment provider in Europe has come out with some absolutely atrocious figures. And uh, the, it's fallen essentially in sympathy. Although I think that's a very stupid move because I think it is uh, in in a completely different market to Worldline. I think Worldline is is more like Wirecard uh, than uh, than than Adyen is uh, is like anything else uh, in terms yeah. of scale, wow sixty anyways, down sixty percent. Wow. Yeah, it's a Jeez. it's a it's, it was a big fall. I think it fell seventy odd on the day, but it recovered uh, a, a little bit towards the end of it. So. Nintendo, then that's one that I also own with you. So this is a show about my stocks that you own. Um, talk to me, Ryan. Do you want to do this, start this one? Uh, sure, I can. Uh, I guess general thesis, general overview here is that Nintendo of new is not the Nintendo of the past, and that we have hopefully a more iterative console cycle. So something that'll last for longer. Um, as opposed to previously, it was very hardware-based. Now, we believe that Nintendo has... It's obviously still tied to the hardware, but you're now tied more so to your Nintendo account. So you can upgrade much like the Xbox or the PlayStation ecosystem, where you can upgrade the hardware, but you've still got the games downloaded on your account. You're paying for a recurring subscription, and it's you're not restarting the entire installed base if, if from Nintendo side. You're not having to restart from square one. So, you know, you can look back at the Wii versus the Wii U, and there were a lot of things wrong with the Wii U. But one problem was that it, it, none of the progress was saved. 
everything from the Wii was totally different on the Wii U. You're, you're starting from square one if you're a user. Now with the Switch, if you've got a Switch, a Switch Lite, a Switch Pro, you can hop from hardware to hardware. And I think they got the Switch OLED and hopefully, oh, sorry, I said Switch Pro. That's not out yet. Hopefully it comes out. Uh, you can upgrade from one to the next, save that progress, access a lot of the same games. There's the backwards compatibility. Basically, the the general analogy is that Nintendo is finally catching up to the rest of the world in gaming and can be more like an Xbox or a PlayStation ecosystem with best-in-class intellectual property, uh, which should be higher margins through the cycle. Yeah, and I will say maybe, if not the best, top three developer overall in the world probably the best just given their holistic properties of zelda and how much they execute on mario we just saw just for example there is a hit game i forget the exact name but it's a spider-man game that's a exclusive to the playstation console and they bragged about how there were 2.5 million units sold a record in the first three days but the new zelda game sold 10 million in the first three days so nintendo from a publishing perspective at this moment is blowing all the competition out of the water and it's trading at, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but a very discounted valuation. If you believe the earnings are durable, if you kind of take out their large cash position, which people argue about with the Japanese companies and how much you should value that cash position, given how conservative they are, they're trading at like 10 times earnings, maybe a little less, maybe a little more, depends on how you kind of break it out. And they don't really need to grow that much to have some, very strong returns, we believe, for uh, shareholders. And then on top of it, they have finally embraced being a holistic entertainment company. I'm sure a lot of listeners heard about the Mario movie and that record success of over a billion dollars at the box office and how much that resonated with the community. And then they've embraced putting in you know theme parks and stuff like that in, uh, in partnership with Universal. They have been doing... And... You kind of have to, okay, it's not showing up that much in the financial statements yet. And a lot of the ways we hope it'll show up is really through the gaming, the durability of their gaming business, because that's going to be much more profitable. But from everything they say, and they're a bit opaque as a management team on how they talk with investors, which is a, con I don't know if it's a concern for us, but a frustration. We like their philosophy on how to, you know, maintain their business and maintain their entertainment uh, properties compared to, you know, someone like Disney, who we think kind of, you know, maybe juice some of the things too much. But from what all they say is they talk about wanting to be an entertainment company, a broader entertainment company that has all these things that relate to each other. So they have the movies that they said they're going to make more for all the hints and rumors out there. They're going to have more movies coming. We don't know how regular they're going to be. Not at the end of the world. If it's like once every three years, they're not making that much money from it. You also have the theme parks that they're going to continue to reinvest in or really have Universal uh, invest in and then they'll take a licensing fee off of it. But those all relate together. And we think, again, it comes back to widening their moat. And if they execute on their next gaming console or they keep you know, having hits with, maybe, maybe hits the wrong word, but basically don't come up with a very strange and gimmicky thing like the Wii U kind of stick, you know, to their, their bread and butter with the, the switch format. We think they're going to generate a ton of cash over the next five years. And 
the biggest concern, and I think maybe Ryan can hop back in here and maybe talk about his biggest concern, but I think my biggest concern is what they do with the cash because a lot of the times they just let it sit on the balance sheet. And then as an American investor, the yen seems to just depreciate. So that's nice. <laughs> that's, uh, we'll, we'll see what they do. They, they hopefully will pay out a special dividend or something eventually or, or buy back some stock. They return some cash to shareholders, but to kind of touch on this point that we're talking about is here was an interview with Doug Bowser. His name is actually Bowser, I swear. And it's the US president of Nintendo. He had he recently did this interview and he's got some quotes in here that are just very direct in terms of what they're looking for. I want to find the exact quote. Uh, in the past, every device we transitioned to had a whole new account system. Nintendo account will allow us to communicate with our players if and when we make a transition to a new platform to help ease that process or transition. It's, I mean, it's pretty clear what they're trying to do here. It's not really any secret. It's more for them, just a timing thing. When do they decide to move, roll out the new hardware? Right now, a lot of the financials are still tied to the hardware system in a way, but when you've got, like with the Wii U, you were you were doing the same game development costs, the same process. You're going through all that stuff, and you're selling to a potential user base of, I don't know how many Wii U people there were, maybe two million. Now with the Switch, you've built up an installed base of I think 120 million accounts, somewhere around there, 120 million accounts, and you're spending the same process, the same expenses, maybe a little more on development. So the operating margins are significantly higher and it's vertically integrated. So they own the distribution. It's not like EA having to sell through Xbox where they take the fee. It's all like after probably 2 million units or something like that, it's pure margin for them. So uh, I think we're going to start to see some of that operating leverage trickle through as well. It's a difficult thing to move away from that though, isn't it? Because you've got to think if you've got an install base that high, um, people are starting to clamor for a new console now. As Nintendo, you've got to look at that thinking, oh, maybe maybe if we... You know, and that's why the, the OLED version has come out of it, the OLED version of the screen has, has come out. So just try and just, just, just keep that going for now. But it's not been a particularly hot seller for them. Uh, I think people are ready for a new console. Nintendo has this history of every second console being not very good. So we moved from the yeah. Wii, which was a huge seller, to the, the Wii U, which was a bad seller, to the Switch, which has been a monster. And then the next one that comes along, I mean, they are crazy. It may come up with something, you know, they may come up with something completely out there. But the reason I like Nintendo is because I kind of see them as low-touch Disney in, in a kind of way. So if Disney want to do something, they will go out and they will rack up a huge amount of debt and they'll go buy that thing and they'll say, look, we want to do this. We, we want to do Fox, whatever Fox uh does we we want to buy that we'll do that whereas nintendo is quite happy to say look if you guys want to do this for us we'll just take a little bit back you take our ip we'll give you uh, an ambassador to help to make sure you do it correctly and you know we'll we'll just take a fee on that and they're doing that in the parks they're doing that in films now as well and that that's what i really like about the way that they've licensed out their ip they're doing it in a way where they're not racking up massive expenses if it all goes if it all goes wrong and um yeah i i just i, I think it's a a great company especially when you you factor in the sort of history of japanese undervaluing of assets um i regularly see it when a japanese company's bought people look at it and say well actually you've got this marked down as 100 million and actually we could sell it for 700 million that happens so regularly on a japanese balance sheet it's uh 
it, it's interesting. But yeah, I think Nintendo is a. I think that's a, a winner in in my eyes. It's not been a winner so far uh, since I've held it. It's been fairly flat. But I, I I've got a feeling that one's that one's going to come good for me in the next sort of ten years for the same reasons that you do really. Yeah, it's got that durability. We hope over the, over the extreme long term that we think makes it a high quality business. The big question for them, and it's it's a bit of a delicate balance, is how much do you how much of the new content do you make exclusive to say we'll call it the Switch Two, and hopefully they learn from the Playstations and the Xboxes of the world where they say okay you can play all these old games on the new one, but we're gonna have a few probably the Mario Kart, maybe the new 3D Mario game, a couple others that are gonna be exclusive to this new one. So if you're the diehard fans, you're gonna want to upgrade right away. And we hope they just follow the playbook of the other console makers a little, you know, we, we do worry about that, but that's just kind of the uncertainty was with this thing. And what we think is nice is that the stock today, a lot of, we think the market is pricing in basically a failure for this new console, given their cash position and given just, you know, where the, where the stock trades. Or that it never comes. Or, yeah, or that it never comes, which is uh, when people say, "Well, well, what if it never?" Uh, or when is it actually coming? It's, it's, it's. They're not going to stop making hardware for, uh, for games, and they're not going to make stuff that's twenty years old. But yeah, yeah, you got to be patient. It's definitely stock that you need to be patient with because it doesn't it doesn't move in today. Yeah, it's, there's not a, there's not a lot of excitement on there. For anybody who likes to check the portfolio on a regular basis, you you can quite easily guess what share price Nintendo is going to be when you uh, when you log in. But yeah, just going back, I think you're you're probably correct about the. Um, I think they probably are the best uh, first party uh, developers uh, around at the moment uh, for the for the games. Uh, I, I can't think of a. Uh, one that sort of looks after its IP with as much care uh, and sort of love as uh, as Nintendo does. So, um, yeah, I think that they are probably... I mean, they, they, everybody has a favourite Nintendo game, right? Even going back to your childhood, you think about playing things like... I mean, I'm old enough to remember Super Nintendo. I'm not sure how old you two are. Uh, but I remember games from Super Nintendo and things like that. So um, Steve doesn't doesn't play games. He's too intellectual for that. Um, we're Wii Sports, yeah, what, guys. We, we were like 10 years old, right? 10, 10 years old when Wii Sports came out, so... That was uh wow. That's the one we remember. Yeah, I oh yeah, I must have been about that as well. Um, I remember having my first thing I owned in the games area was a Game Boy, uh, Game Boy Classic in this yeah. case, with a dreadful football game on it that it came on. That thing then spent quite a while sat on a shelf um, until Pokemon basically got released, and then it spent a lot of time running through batteries. And that's the first time I bought a battery charger, actually, and rechargeable batteries to go in the back of the thing because uh, I think their Nintendo kind of cut screen used to say everything not saved will be lost, which is quite uh, quite poignant, really. Actually, um, it's sort of a metaphor for the end of the world in some ways. But they're going away from that a bit then with um, the idea that you can kind of port things over to to new consoles and so on, which is I think nice to see. I I really rate Nintendo's IP, their ability to iterate games like Mario, like Zelda, which I always forget and always underrate, um, and Pokemon uh, to some extent, and a bunch of sort of sports things as well. I I rate that highly. I rate quite a few highly here, but there's a lot more to Nintendo than just that, which is really quite impressive. Okay, should we get to the real interesting bit then? Um, this is now December, um, roughly. Advent and Christmas is coming, and so is the end of the calendar year. So 
we're asking as many people as we can find. Do you have a prediction for for twenty twenty four? What you think is likely to happen? It can be about it can be about basically anything you like. Um, but we're interested in what you're thinking and. Uh, well, maybe we'll steal the best ones and call them our own, or maybe we'll come up with our own ideas further down the line. Steve, you're right. I was going to say, don't worry about accuracy because we do this every year. Accuracy is not a thing. But no. feel free to give us your best prediction. In fact, I did predict no no recession for twenty 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 two. Yes, I feel like it's going pretty well, but we're that's good. Still nice. in that. Yeah, yeah. We only yeah. mention that every other week, I think, on the show at the moment. So <laughs> yeah. it must get well. We've got right. Yeah. <laughs> No, we're right yeah. on UK house prices too, and wrong on everything else. Coinbase annoyingly is still in existence for me. Yeah, we, uh, we you guys were messaging us about the the recession talk, and I always say, uh, I'll you know pull the the Paul Krugman and say forty percent chance. So you're right either way. But we did predictions. I think we do them every New Year's just for fun, kind of a fun episode. And my prediction was that Amazon would finish. We had to make it a bold one. <laughs> so we're like, Am- I said Amazon will finish the year as the most valuable company in the world. And that has aged poorly. Um, but right now, I would I would predict that this is something I've been on li- lately. It's kind of this fall of, I don't know, the, the only maybe, hopefully it's a good idea. Maybe it's a bad idea. I think there's a lot of opportunity. Like, I think bank stocks the right ones, you know, and some of these credit card companies, some of these, maybe not fintechs, you know, but I'm talking about the discovers, the American express, ally financial capital one. I haven't looked at closely and, you know, and some of the big banks, I think they can do, I think they do really well over the next year or two. I think they're, they're, Uh, I think they're already priced like a, a recession is here and it hasn't shown up yet. Yeah. Well, we need to start doing Brett, when asked for predictions is come out with something really, really bold so that when people hear it, if it's right, we're just going to get tons and tons of listeners. And if it's wrong, people will probably forget about it. So maybe I'll just say like 30% correction and S and P or something, but no, the, I don't know, bold predictions. I think we've been on this for a while and I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in the U S housing prices don't make a lot of sense uh right now and so we uh, said this last year actually and it's worked out okay but i think housing prices have a little bit of a ways to continue coming down just in that they're much less affordable and i think michael burry called it a slow like watching a slow plane crash it's just not as many people can afford them and and you don't have to sell them so it's not getting it's not like an equity it's not getting marked every day so you're really not going to recognize the the price of, of your home until you sell it. And so I, I think over time, it's going to slowly kind of come down. House prices is always a good prediction on this show. Um, it's the thing that all three of us actually made predictions about this year. And independently, we all had pretty much the same uh, prediction. And we're all going to be right, uh, I think, as well. It's not looking good for my other two. I've just reminded myself of what they are. I had that Coinbase would... I phrased it quite carefully. I went with would not be a publicly traded stock by the end of the year. Uh, My thought was it was going to go bankrupt, but I didn't think that I should be robbed of a win in that if it was saved from going bankrupt by being acquired. Uh, And I thought that would not be in the spirit of what I'm predicting here. So I said would not be publicly traded. It's looking like I'm going to be wrong, but it's looking like I might be early 
on that as part of my uh, issue. I don't Not like wrong, just chances. Yeah. Um, and Steve is looking like he's going to be right by being uh, early. My other one was that both Costco and McDonald's would outperform the S&P on a share price basis this year. I'm not winning on that. McDonald's is is letting me down, I think. And I think I I tend to be a tough marker with myself because I think if you're generous with yourself, the comments will soon put you right on this. Um, and I think I'm going to be right on Costco and wrong on McDonald's, which is to say wrong, um, because I said they both would, and I'm not claiming half marks for one of them uh, in this occasion. I'll add, I'll add, I'll add one more. Oh. Go on. Go on right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'll add one more. And I'm stealing this take from someone else. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Match Group, but I don't mm. think this time next year, Match Group will be a public company. Wow. I'm, Andrew Friedman was the first person to say this. And I don't know who the buyer is going to be, but I think he's right. What Ryan mentioned that, I said that's an important part of the question, right? Is who, who the hell is going to buy them? But it's cheap and maybe private equity, but we'll see. Good work. Mm, that's an interesting one. Yeah, it's an interesting one because it's a, it is a serial acquirer. Uh, probably not allowed to do any more acquiring in terms of in terms of dating apps and things like that. You would imagine they're going to get scrutinized quite heavily. Um, Meta? It's fallen, it's fallen a long Meta way. Meta might want this thing? No. Meta, no. Meta, can. Meta can't get that past. Meta will never be allowed to Meta buy Meta can't acquire again. stuff, can it? Yeah, no. it's the same as Google and Amazon. They're never going to be able to acquire anything without severe scrutiny ever again. Fair enough. Yep. Well, that's a bunch of stuff that's not going to happen next year. Uh, feel free to watch all that not unfold in 2024. I think that's pretty much it for our show. So we should thank our guests. If you've ever wondered what our show would look like if it was bigger, better and American, well, there you are. Uh, we've had Brett and Ryan here to show you. Uh, guys, thank you so much for being here. We will bang all the links downstairs, Thanks, obviously. Uh, but where can our viewers find you? Because uh, no doubt Steve has managed to funnel some of them your way, but there are presumably some who haven't got the message yet. Yeah, I would say Spotify, Apple, or YouTube. Just search Chit Chat Money. It'll pop up. Follow the show there, wherever you like to listen to your podcast. And then as well, for following the show, the newsletter is the best place to do that. And you can either just search Chit Chat Money Substack, go on the Substack, Substack app or Substack website, search Chit Chat Money, and a green logo will pop up, and that's us. So those are the, those are the yeah. best places. We're also... Also on Twitter ourselves and the podcast is on Twitter and we tweet out some charts and stuff like that. So lots of, lots of good engagement bait over there, but uh, thank you guys for having us on. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Thanks for coming. Cheers. Thanks guys. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you all very much for listening. Links are all down below. Come back here next week when we will be talking about something else uh, with some other people. Bye for now. <laughs>